Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of the Inference Podcast. I'm Michele, your host, and today I'm talking with Luca Palmieri, which is a principal software engineer at TrueLayer in London, if I remember correctly. Hello, Luca. How are you? Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. That's exactly right. I'm immigrant in London. I'm currently working at TrueLayer. Okay. So what's, what's TrueLayer, just for booting Ooh, up the okay. conversation? Uh, the answer to that question has changed a bit over the years. Uh, Trader is born as an open banking company, so it's born as a way to connect um, businesses and enable them to basically do payments and access banking data using banking infrastructure. At this point in time, our focus has shifted a little bit more towards general financial services, so finding ways to allow businesses to use the financial infrastructure in a way which allow their users to do different things. At this moment, mostly focuses, as we were saying, on like payments and how to make it easier and smooth uh, to actually use banking infrastructure for payment services. Okay, that's great. So you are working in the open banking domain, right? Yes. Okay, and you're working mainly in Rust. Is that correct? Uh, in my specific case, yes. Um, I think TrueLayer mostly works in C Sharp and Rust when it comes oh, to backend okay. services, uh, Rust being the latest addition. Um, so, the company historically was using .NET uh, for backend services, so starting in 2018, 2019, and Rust was added towards uh, the mid of 2020. So, we started driving Rust services once we started offering uh, merchant accounts. So once we started offering, offering a way for customers to actually deposit their money with TrueLayer in order to get a smoother payment experience. So support refunds, support payouts and sweeping and additional functionality. All this new part of the company, so the one that deals with payment ledgers and the trickiest things of actually holding balances and making sure as money go where they're supposed to go and nowhere else, that part was developed in Rust. Um, so it's one third of the services of the company at this point in time, and one third of the developers, more or less as well. Okay, so in, in this episode, I would like to discuss Rust uh, mainly because um, mm -hmm. I feel like it's something that we already touched in other episodes for uh, this season. And I definitely wanted someone who had the expertise for talking a bit more in depth about that programming language that, uh, big disclaimer here, I'm not uh, super confident with <laughs> because um, I have a long history of bad choices. Um, when mm -hmm. I started programming, I had to choose between, let's say, Ruby and Python, and I choose Ruby. So <laughs> wrong choice number one. And now I had to choose between Golang and Rust, and I started with Golang. But the world seems to go on the Rust side. So once again, I think I'm taking the wrong train, and I want you to, to sell me Rust, I would say. Um, no, I'm joking, but I'd really love to uh, learn more about that programming language from you, which you are also writing a book about Rust. Would you like to talk about that book specifically? Yeah, sure. Um, so it's not a book about Rust. Uh, I will frame it as a book about backend development, uh, which oh, happens okay. to use Rust. And that's okay. a little bit there, the, the value proposition. So I think there are good books at this point in time, if you want to pick up the language. Um, so you have the Rust book, so classic reference everybody goes to, freely available on the internet. You have programming with Rust, you have Rust for Rust Station, you have Rust in Action. Like, there are a bunch of different ways you can pick up the language at this point, uh, plus tutorials, articles, all the usual things you find on the internet. But I think 
the shortcoming, if you want, and where there was a little bit of a gap, at least in my personal experience, was I want to use Rust to do X. What's the idiomatic way of actually using this language in this domain? And that's exactly the situation we found ourselves into when we started to use Rust a year and a half ago uh, for doing those backend services. So Rust had a bunch of frameworks and a bunch of libraries that you could use and stitch together uh, to do backend development. But there was no comprehensive introduction on how to do backend development using Rust. And this was a problem for a variety of ways. Um, I was a fairly proficient Rust developer at that point in time, um, so I was able to spend the time and the effort that took me to the point where I was able to write backend service proficiently, but that was not enough. Uh, like, we are operating in a company where that group that I was talking about started last year was two developers, today's 35, 40 developers, more or less. So oh, we're okay. 16 months, uh, 13 months, whatever they are, uh, we have doubled in size multiple times. And that can only happen if you are able to onboard new developers and if you're able to do it efficiently. And do it efficiently means, if you're talking about Rust, in most cases, then you need to teach them the language. Like, iron philosophy at Rulayer from day zero has never been, you need to know the technology we use to come and work with us. You need to know the domain, which is backend development, and we'll teach you the technology. This was true when we were doing C-sharp, this is still true when we're doing Rust. And Rust in particular, the amount of people we can find, which are already proficient in using Rust, is not very high. There's a massive amount of people who want to use it, who are interested in the language, who find it cool, have read about it, want to learn more, like infinite supply of those. But most of them will not come with the knowledge, which means that they need to arrive inside the company, they need to be trained. And that's where the book problem came into, like, prominence because I was getting C-sharp developers, JavaScript developers, Java developers who needed to learn Rust for backend development. And if I sent them to learn Rust as a language, that would have taken them longer because they would have been learning about FFI and, I don't know, multi-threading, things that don't necessarily intersect a lot with what you do when you're writing a backend API. And they wouldn't have been learning about uh, how to use async Rust in specific situations or how to do task locals and a bunch of other things, which instead are much more common in your daily, day-to-day uh, -day when you're doing Rust for backend. And so that's where the book comes from. It's like, if I need to onboard a new developer I need to, and I need to teach them how do you do Rust if you're doing backend development at scale and production, as the title says, that's what the book is meant to teach you. It's taking you on a journey, let's like do an email newsletter API, which is the fictional example we build throughout the book. Let's get it started. Uh, let's explain how to do continuous integration. Let's explain the different choices for web frameworks and why we're choosing certain things and not others. Put together a database, instrumentation, telemetry, um, security aspects. So how do you actually secure an API and what are the trade-offs? How do you model your domain using types? The things that I expect you to be doing actually on a daily basis, which means that I'm not teaching a lot of other things. So the book does not talk about, as we were saying, FFI. We don't discuss too much memory layouts and other things that you might find interesting if you're doing different things with Rust. Um, we don't touch on many of the advanced concepts. Like we try to stick to the subset of the language which you need to be productive. And then from there, like if you truly understand that, the idea is that you can easily go and read about topic X, Y, Z. So you go there, you find the relevant resource, you learn something. And you expand as you need, which I think is a good framework when you're learning something new. You just shouldn't try to be encyclopedic unless you have a reason to. You should try to learn with an objective and then gives okay. you like a little bit of a comfort zone. 
And then from the comfort zone, you go and explore a little bit of boundaries. And then the comfort zone gets larger and larger, and eventually you're a master of the language. Which, considering how big language is, perhaps nobody truly is, but you're right. Comfortable in your domain, you can do things like you don't spend time wrestling with the compiler, which I think is the objective. Oh, okay, okay, got it. So it's more an approach of uh, learn by doing yes. rather than I will explain you how the language work and then we will be implementing little things. So you you start with a project and then explain the the programming language itself, uh, specifically on what you have to implement with that language. Exactly. Uh, which yeah, I can see. I can see how that can really help. And uh, you know, it's a bit different approach from other books, and that also talks. Um, you know, that also tells why you already sold uh, two thousand copies, right? Yeah, two thousand and seven hundred. I think I was checking yesterday. Oh wow! Okay, oh, so well. that's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> it is really. Yeah, good. congrats. Yeah, that's that's great. And just uh, we we didn't mention the um, uh, the book name. So oh. what's the book name? How oh. where can we buy it? So you can find it if you search for zero two production in Rust. Uh, my search engine optimization skills should have gotten at least the exact book title. <laughs> it should be on the first page. Uh, but if you don't find it, you can just go on zero two prod dot com, and there you can find uh, links and the synopsis of the book. Okay, awesome. I will also leave a link in the description field for this video. So um, if you're uh, listening to the podcast uh, on YouTube, you will find the link directly on the description field. And you also talked about one thing that I'd like to explore more, and it's about onboarding people on Rust. Mm -hmm. So uh, I would like, before digging deep into the language, I would like um, to have from you a feedback on how hard it's is to onboard people on Rust because you told it's quite easy actually, or yeah. I misunderstood. I said that it was done multiple times. I didn't say that it was easy. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, okay, that so makes sense. Let me put it in. Uh, let me put it into perspective. I've onboarded people to C Sharp uh, in the past. I've onboarded people to Python, which are the two main programming languages I use um, outside of Rust. And it's needless to say that Rust is more complex. Um, is it intrinsically more complex? I think that remains a question to be answered as time goes on. But I think it introduces a bunch of novel elements which require the learner to digest them before they can actually be productive. And some of these are specific to Rust. Um, the borrow checker and, in general, the concept of borrowing and ownership that you don't find in other programming languages. And so if you're coming to Rust and you haven't programmed in Rust before, those you need to be taught. There's no other way around it. And also, they're fairly prominent in the way you use the language, so it's very difficult to get going very far without actually having a, a little superficial understanding of what borrowing is and what ownership is. And at a certain point, it's going to click, and then it's going to become natural in the way you do things, uh, but it requires a little bit of mental effort. The second challenge of learning Rust uh, comes from other elements of the language which are not novel, so they're not being introduced by Rust for the first time, but perhaps are not shared with mainstream programming languages. Um, and in this list, you usually have the use of algebraic types, um, so enums okay. which can have values and can be matched upon and are used very extensively in Rust to provide misuse-resistant APIs. These are familiar with anybody who has worked with Haskell or Camel, general languages from the ML family, but unfortunately those languages are not particularly mainstream. So although that exists and it's not a novelty from a programming language design. For most people who are coming from an object-oriented or from a dynamic language, like as I said, Python, C-sharp, Java, 
JavaScript, uh, you, know, you name it, those things are new. Right, they're not used to it. They perhaps are used to C enums, uh, so where you can just have like a bunch of different values and you use that mostly to code strings and numbers, but they're not used as enumeration with values, so algebraic types. And definitely they're not used to using algebraic types for managing nullability. Um, that is something absolutely new for most people. And absolutely they're not used to using algebraic types for managing errors. So error is values instead of using exceptions. And so this little thing, like just define the Rust as algebraic types has such a massive impact in the way you actually program idiomatically that it takes some people a little bit of time to actually shift gears and say, okay, actually I can do this thing. And then the other, the other part is uh, the way generics and traits work, uh, which is different from, for example, classes and abstract classes and class inheritance. So the thing that's a little bit more similar to type classes in Haskell, that takes a little bit of switching to, and what is possible with generics and trait bounds. So generally speaking, um, depending on the language you're coming from, you're gonna struggle with different things. Uh, like for example, people who come from JavaScript and TypeScript, from what I've seen, don't struggle a lot with algebraic types. Uh, that is something that actually comes very natural to the few people I've onboarded who came from a TypeScript background mostly because I'm mean, exposed to React and similar things to do a bunch of functional programming. Those concepts oh, are yeah. not actually super novel. So they don't struggle with those. But for example, somebody who comes from JavaScript uh, starts to struggle with the concept of multi-threading, like what it means to be thread safe, what it means to be sent yeah. and sync. Not because like they need to learn it, like they've not been exposed to it. It's not something they think about on a daily basis. So they're gonna struggle with those things. And then somebody who's coming from the object-oriented is gonna struggle with the more functional aspects. And then somebody who's coming from the functional aspects is gonna struggle with the fact that some of the functional idioms don't actually translate very well. So if you're coming from a purely functional language which has uh, first-class functions and you're used to do higher order functions and higher order types everywhere, uh, you're gonna have a very tough time because that is not oh, easy okay. to do in Rust. Uh, requires a little bit, like. Generally speaking, it's not the way you go to do some of those things. So it's all about, I think, knowing where the person is coming from, knowing what they're familiar with, and then carving for them a learning path, which gradually introduces the novelty elements without overwhelming them. So, and that usually is done in two phases. Uh, the way we usually do it is we give them some introductions to the language, which don't, don't touch the domain. Uh, one of those is one of the workshops I wrote a couple of years back on how to build a small Jira CLI. It's absolutely simple, mm -hmm. like it's not doing anything complex. And you have a bunch of files which have tests at the bottom. So you just need to fill in in the spaces which have been left uh, for you to fill in. It's very similar to Rustlings, which is another collection of things uh, that you can find maintained by the Rust project itself. But it's a little bit more geared once again uh, to domain um, business logic and the type of things you actually do in backend services. So that gets them a little bit started and like they get acquainted with the tooling, which is also a little bit of a change uh, for some of them. And then from there, we build up using the book and using a little bit small PRs on the projects to get them to work with those new items. And after a certain, like usually you can see there's a, there's a phase shift at a certain point in time, as I was saying before, where like some concepts do click and they actually start using them idiomatically. And then from there, like it's downhill. So they might struggle occasionally with like some compiler error doing some weird things and other things. But generally speaking, then they're at ease with the language and they can be productive with it, which is what matters the most to us. So usually in a certain number of weeks, then they can actually start contributing to the projects. And then from there, they can learn the language at their own pace.
Okay, that's that's awesome. And before we move on on that aspect of the language, I would like to uh, go back to a point that you um, hit uh, when talking about the difficulties that people coming from object-oriented programming languages and you know functional programming languages can struggle with. Um, specifically, um, in the in the past season, we discussed with uh, Alexander Granin, who is a great uh, Haskell engineer how the future of certain languages seems to be multi-paradigm. So we will have like Haskell being purely functional forever, but we will see like Java or Scala or Colin uh, being multi-paradigm so that you can write, uh, you know, object-oriented programming with some uh, functional flavor on it, let's say. And uh, listening to you talking about the difficulties, on the other hand, I, uh, it almost feels like Rust, it's a conjunction between paradigms because, yeah, it doesn't provide any uh, object-oriented programming concepts such as uh, polymorphism, inheritance, or, you know, other constructs, but also makes hard to uh, program in a purely functional way. Mm -hmm. So I would like to learn your opinion on Rust being like the conjunction between two different worlds where everyone struggles. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But where probably FP programs and OOP programs can, you know, um, come to a point where the paradigm is not important anymore because it's like the first time that we see a programming language that it's making everyone happy. So that's that's something I'd like to, you know, have your opinion on because uh, that's my perception. But I would like to know from an insider of the language uh, how things are, are are actually hard. I mean, as you said, like it's making everyone happy if you look at the surveys. Uh, but also, it seems to be making everyone everyone equally uncomfortable if you look at like yeah. the, the ramp up. <laughs> I don't know. Like conceptually, I I struggle to find the difference between like the distinct the categorization of like languages being object oriented and languages being functional to be a very productive uh, lens to use to read programming languages. Like as you said, there are styles, so ways in which you can use certain things, um, which makes them more functional, more object oriented. So if you're doing, um, so if you're mutable variables and you're like favoring recursion instead of doing for loops and mutating variables, then you can say that one is more functional, the other is more imperative, but even then imperative is not object oriented. So for example, Rust is definitely more imperative than being object oriented. Yeah. What does it mean to be object oriented? Is object orientation inheritance or is object orientation, for example, encapsulation? Um, so the possibility of defining structs, which have different level of visibility for fields. So that you can encapsulate certain constraints. And then encapsulation, how is that different from modularity, which is something you get in a lot of functional like languages as well, just in a different fashion. So that's not necessarily like uh, a taxonomy that I like to use. So I think the big difference in Rust uh, is that the memory layout, and as we were talking about before, so the ownership and borrowing comes into the, oh, yeah. into the way you design the language. So you design your programs. So if you're trying to do, for example, so polymorphism, right? You were saying before, Rust does have polymorphism, but that's not that the polymorphism you're used to. So if you need to design something, so if you need to design uh, the classic example, right? Dogs, cats, uh, and then things, and then you have like the base class, which is an animal. Is yeah. that a behavior? So if that is a behavior, then Rust gives you traits, which is very similar to type classes. If you need to share okay. 
of state, so you need to share a bunch of data, you have various options. So you can compose that data. So each of those sub, like subclasses, if you want, so each of those structs can have a bunch of data which is defined in one place and each of them do mention it. Or you can say, is this a finite enumeration or an infinite enumeration? In which case you would use an enum instead of using, for example, a trait or finding some other way of composing it inside. So it is indeed like certain things are functional, but to me they're functional by association. Like algebraic types are not functional. They just happen to be very popular between like among functional languages. And so they've been oh, yeah, absolutely. characterized historically as being functional, but there's nothing functional about algebraic types. Like they're a feature of the type system. And even then, like traits, they're not necessarily functional. They're just a way of saying, perhaps sharing data is not such a great idea. Like we learned that most of the languages who are object-oriented explicitly discourage people from doing inheritance in most of the cases. So that's just us saying, okay, we learned that that pattern doesn't work, so we're not going to give it to, we're not gonna give it to you uh, by default. So to me, I think the thing that I like about Rust is that it takes certain things that were, in a way, strongly associated with functional languages, and it diverses them from the jargon that was associated with them. So it actually takes a feature like algebraic types, and it shows to you how it works, and why it matters, and what you can do with it. Without necessarily like spending too much time on what that means like at a conceptual level and how you should model this thing in a mathematical sense which i think is a one of the main issues i have with functional languages saying that as a mathematician like i understand the jargon i just don't think it's useful like when you're trying to teach me how to use algebraic types you gotta teach me why it solves my problem then if i want to nerd a little bit on programming language design and you want to show me some category theory, theory diagrams i'm happy to be shown those they shouldn't be in beginner documentation. That's now you introduce this type of stuff to people joining the language. Thank you, thank you a lot for saying that. That <laughs> well, was true. my main struggle, and you know, it's it's continuing to be my struggle right now when working in Haskell or whatever. And so, so if you're you're basically telling me telling me that Rust provides you um, a kind of way for working with some concepts that you can also find Haskell, OKMOL, yeah. and other ML languages, but, you know, w without that academical uh, area around it, uh, so that if you're a programmer like me, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm self-thought, so I'm, I don't have an academical background. So do you think that would be easier for me to get started, for example, with Rust, uh, where the same concepts applies to both languages? And yeah. again, sorry for interrupting you, but this is, this is really important for me. No, absolutely. Like, like, as I said, I don't think that's a feature of the language, right? That's one of the things that characterizes the community. So if you really want to be yeah. welcoming and you actually want to get people to use the language and you want to talk to them at the level that they can understand, that's what you do. Like, you calibrate your documentation, you calibrate your books, you calibrate all your resources to make it so that your developer persona, who's a developer, not a mathematician, can actually onboard on the language and use it. That is not to say that there is not theory available. Like, if you, as I said, if you want to nerd on how certain things are done and how like, you can model the type system, there's plenty of resources, some of which are actually fairly complex, that go into the details, but you need to opt into learning that. That is not a requirement for you to actually use the language. And I think the same could be done with Haskell. And there are resources in the Haskell community, I think. There was a lot around boring Haskell and a bunch of other things, which actually are geared 
with the same approach, it's just they don't happen to be the majority. And so the impression you get when you start in the community is that like, well, why do I need to learn all these things to actually do what I want? Yeah, I get it. Uh, I, I get it. And this is super feedback. Uh, I would like to have like an entire episode on that only uh, because it's really, it's really frustrating for people coming from, you know, other, other backgrounds without a mathematical, mathematical background, uh, getting into Haskell or ML languages specifically, um, where the jargon, it's really bringing you back from realizing something uh, that can actually go in production. And, and this is where I see Rust being again, a conjunction uh, between many different backgrounds. And um, even though I, I kind of see um, the influence that ML had oh, into yes. Rust, and maybe it was also because Rust was built, first built in OCaml uh, mm -hmm. at the beginning. So I, I feel like there is um, something coming from ML. I, I, feel, I think of uh, option data type, and oh, sorry, the result data type. Uh, I'm confusing between languages. I'm mean, both. Remember we? <laughs> oh yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> Here it is. Um, as I said at the beginning, um, I'm not really into Rust, so I'm still learning. Uh, <laughs> definitely. So uh, please forgive me when I say stupid thing, things no, uh, uh, as such. Um, but okay, um, I would like to move on, and I know it's incredibly complex, so I do not expect a full explanation on that. But I would like for people who is listening and is in my same situation, I would like you to explain in extremely simple terms the borrow checker. Ooh. And I know it's super complex probably, you know, to dig deep into that topic, but if possible to use simple terms to explain to someone like me that has no experience in that language, but wants to learn more. So it's actually, it's not that complex. Uh, I think that's oh, another okay. myth that needs to be debunked. Now, I might go on to explain it in complex terms, and so like fail on my own swords, uh, fall on my own sword. <laughs> uh, but generally speaking, I think the issue with the border checker is not understanding how the border checker works, and I'm going to go into that in a few moments, is then living with the consequences of what that means on the way your program is structured. And that's where it gets complex. But let's go into the border checker. So what does the border checker mean in Rust in simple terms? Every time you have a value in Rust, whatever that value is, there is an owner. So there is somebody who is formally owning that value. If you own it, you can do whatever you want with it. You can destroy it. Uh, you can change it. That's great. And you can choose as well to borrow it to other people. And you have fundamentally two types of um, loans that you can make if you want to use the borrowing terms. So I can lend you an object using a mutable reference so that you can mutate the object as well. So I can give you, for example, an object which is called the box and you can put an item into the box. To do that, you need to mutate it. There's only one rule that can only be at any point in time a single mutable reference to an object. So you can mutate it, so I can give you a mutable reference to you and you can mutate it, but I cannot at the same time, for example in another thread, give a mutable reference to somebody else. Because that, that we would have a synchronization problem and bad things could happen. Yeah. The other option is I can give you an immutable reference or a shared reference use proper terminology. And a shared reference means that you can access the value that I'm giving to you, but you cannot change it. And of course I can give 
as many mutable as many immutable references as I like. So if you have five threads, I can read those references to five threads because the memory is not changing, so you're all gonna read the same values. And you cannot mutate it. And that's exactly what the border checker does. So fundamentally, like if you really wanna boil it down, is that at any point in time there is only one piece of the program who's authorized to do mutation, and or exclusive or, there can be multiple pieces of the program which are allowed to read data without mutating it. Now, there's a bunch of caveats and asterisks that you can do some of this stuff at runtime, there is interior mutability, and etc, 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 etc. But like for 99% of the use cases, that's exactly what it means. So it means that if you need something which needs to be read across threads, and you want to mutate it by multiple threads, uh, it's not going to compile unless you put a lock in front of it. And this is beautiful, especially when threads come into the picture or concurrency comes into the picture, because then what this means is that the compiler is actually able to assert at compile time if an object is thread safe or not, which if you're coming from C Sharp or Python, well, Python has the uh, global interpreter lock, so kind of a special case. But if you're looking at C Sharp or Java, that's a big deal because it doesn't mean, like, means you don't have to go and like crawl through documentation to check if they say that it's thread safe, plus you don't have to ask yourself where they write in saying was thread safe, which is not always the case. Definitely leads to me twice with production bugs due to thread safety, alleged thread safety on documentation, but not in practice. And what this means as well is that a lot of the things about functional programming that we came to love are not as relevant. And let me elaborate on that. Uh, I think oh, a lot yeah, of the sure. allure of functional programming, at least in the micro, uh, so we're looking at the specific function or the specific method and the way to compose things, comes from the fact that every time you're making a function call, you're basically opening a Pandora box. Like you don't know if the function you're passing a value to is gonna mutate it. So the deeper the routine, the more likely it is that there are mutations in different sub-functions. And the only way for you to know is to recursively inspect uh, all the sub-functions. And then that's where you get horrified, especially when you're calling like utility libraries written by somebody that are mutating your stuff and you don't know about it. And say, so, okay, I'm gonna go functional, um, which is say, everything is gonna be immutable, so I don't have to worry about this. The thing about Rust is that mutability gets elevated inside the type system. So this reference that I was talking about, uh, the, the one marked with the ampersand, so you have ampersand of a value or you have mutable ampersand of a value. So when a function says, I wanna take a certain thing as input, it needs to specify, do I want to become the owner of that thing? Do I want to get a mutable reference or do I want to get an immutable reference? What that means is that it's impossible for some functions that you're calling to mutate values behind your back because it's not gonna compile. So you are painfully aware, if you want, in a few occasions, of what level of access you're giving to your values when you're calling sub-functions. And what this means is that when I'm actually debugging like a massive API call, which has seven services, bunch of API calls, DB calls, and a bunch of other things, I don't have to inspect all the different sub-functions, you know, who's mutating what. I can just look at signatures. So if I'm interested in tracking down the mutations, I actually can very quickly scheme to what subsets of the functions are actually mutating my data. And so that makes it a lot easier to understand what the program is doing. Because once again, you can abstract away the body. So one of the things I care about has now been elevated to be part of the signature. 
So I can skim the signature and say, okay, do I need to care about this? Yes, no, well, pass over. Like, just go fast, 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 fast. And so that's why I think some of the functional things become less relevant because you can actually do local mutation very easily. It's not going to leak uh, to the arguments you're passing in because local mutation only looks at the stuff inside the function. And global mutation is tightly controlled uh, using type system. So you actually know what's going to mutate your things. And that's what also the compiler is going to complain if you do that in an unsynchronized fashion. And so you get all these logs and ref cells. And that's why you know, that's why you know this when people have just come into Rust. There's locks everywhere. Because like, okay, I want to mutate oh, yeah. this thing from every place. So I'm going to need locks. I'm going to need ref cells. I'm going to need uh, reference counters and a bunch of other things. And that's because once you actually start programming with this constraint, then you can no longer have that massive like class, which has everything inside that you're mutating and accessing like from 700 different places. And somehow it's going to work. You need to split the state of your program based on the access patterns. So in a way, it's data-oriented programming, like which data is usually mutated together, which data is only just read. Do I need to keep them together? Do I need to separate them? What does that mean? How do I encapsulate the values? And so that usually also your structs get smaller because they actually start to coincide with like atoms of meaning of some kind. So okay, this stuff is usually like accessed together, so probably I can bundle it into a struct. And then I can pass that around. And then it's fine because if I have a mutable pointer, I can block the whole thing. And that is fine because I don't need to do some other things at the same time. So it has funny, like very interesting ramifications, which generally, at least in my personal experience, leads to a clearer structure in the code. Although there is the caveat that depending on what type of program you're, like, you're trying to write, sometimes it can get in the way. And I think the like, example that the Rust community goes into over and over again is by your graphs, uh, where you have like, structures of things which are pointing to themselves and you need to modify nodes and edges. Like those type of self-referential structs uh, with the border checker is like a little bit of a tough game. But truth be told, if you're writing a backend server, you almost never deal with self-referential structs. Which is what I was saying before, right? Like you need to know the language at the level you need to use it. So if you're running a compiler, um, perhaps like you're representing your dependency graph, then you need to deal with graphs, and that can be a little bit tricky. But your day-to-days of can this person pay this other person, do they have enough money? It's not really about like self-referential structs. Oh, yeah. It's about have I model the user in such a way that I know if the account is open or closed, and certain accesses are done atomically, and I'm using transactions correctly. Like that's what I want to see. Okay, that's that's incredibly interesting, and I'm I gotta say I'm totally sold. I <laughs> I, I need to get my hands dirty uh, with Rust uh, because it's it's just incredibly incredible to see how many problems actually is the type system itself solving and how it can describe your data and your whole program structure. So it's it's really fascina uh, fascinating. And no, I, I really need to get into Rust <laughs> as I mean, soon as possible because it's really It was never a better time. And to elaborate on that one more time, so on type yeah. systems, like another aspect which is often undervalued is the onboarding side once again. So when people say that it takes longer to onboard the last developers, what it usually means is that it takes longer for them to actually contribute successfully to a code base. But the flip side of that argument 
is also that it takes them longer to contribute bugs to the code base because the compiler is actually catching a lot of the onboarding mistakes they would make, not allowing them to actually get the project to compile, which is frustrating, but at the same time, it serves as an additional teacher, which is not another developer, who's telling them, no, you can't mutate this thing inside this utility. That would be a bad idea. And you could catch some of these in PR reviews, but the more you can lift into the type system, the more the correctness of your code base is guaranteed by its own structure. And so structuring the code base by itself is a significant amount of effort, like goes a long way in making sure the code base stays correct in the long run, especially as developers churn because they leave the company or they change teams or they move to other projects yeah. and new developers come in. So the more is encoded inside the program itself, the more likely it is that certain environments are going to stay documented that are going to actually be upheld. Yeah, this is something I, <laughs> I feel like it's an heritage of, you know, ML languages where they say <laughs> if it compiles, it works. And I see that in Rust too, uh, when I'm, you know, reading something about Rust. So it's it's really interesting. Again, um, uh, I, I'm sold. I, I need to see that in first in first person. Um, but before we, uh, we go into the conclusion, I would like to ask you something a bit different. Uh, I know that, uh, no, you actually told me that uh, you're a mathematician, right? Yes, I am. You have you know, a degree in mathematics and you've been into com um, data science, right? Yes, I was. <laughs> okay, so I would like um, an opinion from you mm. about machine learning or data science in general in Rust, because I know that you're working in something like that, but I, I would like to learn from you how it's moving uh, into that language, because as for now, it seems like Python is the king and no one is dethroning. Uh, it's tried to dethrone him. Um, but maybe is Rust a possible competitor in the data science field for uh, machine learning or, you know, with, with Python and Rust? So, I mean, I'm not doing ML on a daily basis anymore. Um, so some of my opinions on the state of the ecosystem might be slightly dated. At a high level, the way I think about Rust and machine learning is that Rust is not competing with Python. So Rust is competing with C and C++. Uh, for those of you in the audience who have not done a lot of machine learning, uh, Python is the language to do machine learning. So that's why you have all the libraries, where you have all the community, where you have all the interest and the hype. And that's absolutely what you should be using if you're doing it well. Now, Python by itself, as you probably also know, is not the fastest programming language. So yeah. if you're writing your algorithms in pure Python and manipulating matrices written in pure Python, uh, that's a high chance that your stuff is extremely extreme slow, slow to the point of being unusable. The reason Python actually became mainstream in the ML space is that we because of a bunch of libraries, the core um, data science toolkit in Python, NumPy, Pandas, uh, SciPy, Scikit-Learn, um, TensorFlow, Keras, but Keras on top of TensorFlow and a bunch of others. And all these libraries share one thing in common. They are Python wrappers on top of a C or C++ or Cyton API, depending on the flavor that they prefer to use. So actually the bulk of the logic, the one that actually does the heavy lifting and does all the numerical crunching is not written in Python. This is great because you get native speed and it allows Python to actually be competitive uh, unless you need to write something custom that cannot be made using the pre-existing like primitives. The issue with that is that you have the two language problem. Um, so you're suddenly using NumPy, you're doing a bunch of things, uh, now you want to do another thing, which NumPy doesn't do. 
And now you want to contribute to NumPy, but now you need to write C, which you don't know. And so you're not contributing to NumPy. Or you need to write your own algorithm, and you don't know C, so it's going to be slow, so you're not going to do it. Um, and that is a little bit of an issue, uh, because you have a very lopsided distribution where you have a lot of consumers and very few producers uh, in the community itself, and just in general, you can't self-serve. And that's because writing C or writing C++ is difficult, uh, requires a lot of discipline, requires deep knowledge of the language, and if you are a Pado practitioner and you've only done dynamic programming before, you probably lack a lot of those. Uh, not because you can't learn it, but it would be a significant investment to actually do so. And probably you don't want to make that investment. Rust is an interesting um, option to have uh, because you can use Rust instead of C and C++ uh, to write those native extensions for, for Python. There's excellent tooling for writing Python extensions in Rust. Really, really, really simple to use, works out of the box, takes care of distribution. I wouldn't say as good as Cargo, but almost as good as Cargo. And writing Rust is a lot easier for the same reasons we were discussing before. So it might take a month to get it to compile, but you know that it works. Or at least it's not doing something that you might really regret. So it's not leaking memory, doesn't have buffer overflows, and a bunch of other things that if you actually ship to production, especially machine learning models, they usually deal with user inputs of different kinds. And that's where you get a little bit of problems because you're feeding user inputs into something that might not be written as it should from a security perspective. If you use Rust, you feel a lot calmer when you're actually deploying this stuff to Prod. So the competition there is, are we seeing more Python packages or choosing to write the heavy lifting in Rust compared to choosing to write the heavy lifting in C and C++? And I think that that's definitely the trend. Like we've seen several in the last year, a couple of years, were actually using Rust. Uh, one that came around recently is Tangram, uh, which is a startup in San Francisco. And what they do, they write the end-to-end machine learning workflow. Um, they're using trees, um, boost, gradient boosted models, not, much, not deep learning models. And all the backend is written in Rust, and then they offer bindings in a bunch of different programming languages, from Python to JavaScript. Uh, there are others, if you look around and you like, search. Is it becoming mainstream? I think it's too early to say. Uh, I think we're going to see increased adoption. Some of the primitives are getting sta more stable. Um, so I think arrays are getting more stable. Now we're getting constant generics in Rust. That's going to help a lot in improving some of the elements inside the ecosystem. There was a lot of work into providing an Arrow implementation. So Arrow is a data format that is heavily used to exchange data between data and data analytics okay. systems. And so more and more things are coming to the ecosystem which are making it easier and easier to write higher level applications. Um, so I think eventually we're going to see it become one of the default, like, default choices. Like I need to write a high performance component within my larger Python, Julia, uh, R application, whatever that is. Uh, but yeah, it's not going to replace Python. I don't think anything is going to replace Python, at least from the things I see at the moment. Uh, I don't perceive okay. a cosmic shifting, like uh, <laughs> I mean, shifting in the force that's going to take Python off the, the king throne, at least for now. Yeah, okay. No, that's that's a great clarification, actually, uh, because, you know, from someone looking at the at the ML world from the outside, um, you know, seeing Rust being competitive and entering this world too, it's something, you know, to track or keep mm -hmm. an eye on. Also, um, I'm really into uh, Node.js and I, I see how Rust is, you know, kind of starting a revolution in the way uh, we adopt JavaScript on the server. 
by you know powering Dino, which is the principal competitor for Node.js nowadays on the server, and also for compiling JavaScript itself. Now we have SWC, which is written in Rust, which is a full-fledged compiler for um, TypeScript and JavaScript. So I can totally see that it's a good time, as you said, to learn Rust. It's the perfect time, probably, because I definitely see the future uh, being more Rust-oriented. And um, I've already discussed this in the first episode uh, with uh, Luciano Mammino. We talked about Rust a bit. And um, here I say, I, I would say the same thing I told to him, and is it's the first time I see a language that it's succeeding in dethroning C++. I mean, C++ is here to stay, no doubts about that. It's beautiful, it's performant, it's hard to maintain, <laughs> we also know that, and probably this is where Rust is, you know, coming into place and say, okay, uh, I might be 1% slower, but I'm easier to maintain, so it's a trade-off that you, you can also accept. But again, it's the first time in almost 50 years that we see a language that can be an actual competitor of C or C++. And that's incredible. That's something that on its own can state as this is the future of programming on many different fields. So that's why I, I decided to invite someone to talk about Rust. This is why I'm interested and I should definitely learn more about the language. And this is why I want to thank you for bringing your own experience and talking in such clear way about complex topics, because these aren't easy topics, <laughs> and being able to explain this um, in in such a simple way, it's a great proof of knowledge. And I I, I, I don't know what to say other than I will buy your book because I <laughs> want to learn more from you. So thank you again for being here. It has been a real pleasure, and I hope to see you again in the future because it's been really really pleasant. I mean, it's always a pleasure to come and talk a little bit about these topics. Uh, it's fun also to see how they are perceived uh, from people from different communities and coming from a different perspective. So, like, the topic might be the same, but the conversation is always a little bit different. Um, yeah. So, definitely. Happy to be here again. Okay, so thank you. Hope to see you soon. Have a nice rest of the day. Bye-bye. <laughs>